Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students. My name is Gregory Robinson and I'm your host. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. Today we are very lucky to have Kardik Pradeep in here, who is in the neuroscience program. Kardik, uh, what exactly do you do in the neuroscience program? Well, um, I am in Dr. Julio Martinez's cognitive neurophysiology lab. He primarily focuses on a lot of electrophysiology. Uh, a lot of his models are non-human primates, but he's been also has a small focus on autism. A lot of his newer research focuses a bit on autism. I particularly study autism in stem cell cultures or cultures derived from stem cells. And these stem cell cultures were produced from patients that had autism with a specific mutation that I'm particularly interested in. So I already have a bunch of questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you're studying autism. Yes. For those that don't already know, what is autism? So autism... Great first question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a difficult question as well because the definition of it is constantly changing, right? But broadly speaking, it is this very complex neurodevelopmental disorder that typically produces symptoms of social communication deficits as well as behaviors like uh, restrictive and repetitive behaviors. Uh, oftentimes there are comorbidities like seizures that are often found in a large subset of the population as well as um, ADHD or attention um, deficit hyperactive disorder. But like I said, it's a very complex disorder. Uh, the underlying cause is quite unknown and mysterious. A lot of genome-wide association studies, basically studies that try to associate a specific gene mutation with say a phenotype or some kind of observable trait has implicated like hundreds of genes as a potential cause for autism right now no single gene has been implicated or very rarely is there ever a single gene that's implicated for autism mm -hmm. right and very rarely does a single mutation end up resulting in autism oftentimes it's the result of multiple hits and if it was one single mutation then yeah. you would assume we would have already figured it out by now yeah yeah Pres presumably I, yeah and like there I are mean, <laughs> there's lots of diseases that are single gene mutations and we still like somehow didn't work it out so it's not i don't know if it's guaranteed if it yeah. has a single yeah. gene but it much it would be a lot easier because at least you got the target narrowed <laughs> yes i mean there is there used to be uh, a classification or what is known as right now rett syndrome which used to be part of autism now it's more under intellectual disabilities really yeah and that one's caused by a single mutation in a protein called mecp2 or methyl cpg binding protein it's essentially an epigenetic regulator it's a protein that regulates the expression of other genes and if you have a mutation in this you have a very very high likelihood of developing uh, Rett syndrome. And depending on the number of cells that are affected with this mutation, you'll have a greater severity. So say if 50% of the neurons in your brain are affected with this mutation, you're going to have 50%, relatively speaking, of the severity than a person that has 100% of their brain with that specific mutation. Hmm. Right. So part of my research used to focus on that. Now I've shifted to another gene known as Shank2, which um, is kind of also related in that signaling cascade or the 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 mechanism that MECP2 follows, but Shang2 is a bit more upstream of where the actual action happens, so to speak, in the neuron. Hmm. Okay. So, um, so we discussed now a lot of things back yes. in. You know, yeah. you've got a lot of details there. So just to unpack that a little bit, we've got uh, this disorder, disease. I'm not exactly sure the terminology. Disorder. But you de you de described it as a neurodevelopmental. Yes. So that's meaning it, it, it occurs, you know, earlier. It's like mm -hmm. a de during development, I suppose. Um, and it's it, it's a spectrum. So there's lots of 
uh, variation in how people have it. And you explained that as a, as an epigenetics thing. So that's kind of where I guess environment and genetics kind of mm-hmm. merge. Yeah. So we have this really complicated <laughs> oh, yeah. sort of disease, and you're kind of finding a way to research this when you don't have a clear target because some diseases have uh, a single gene where we can just say hey everyone group together and work out what this gene does and how to fix it so it doesn't mess up what it's what's what's messed up so now you've identified um, at least there was one one gene you'd mentioned before and another one that you said that you're working on that actually do similar things is they're they're related they don't do exactly the same thing is but, it that that for most of the genes associated to you, you also mentioned studies where they looked at lots of genes. Is it that lots of these genes are like doing related things or working together? Yeah. Is, is that so a common thing in autism? That's exactly it, right? Like whenever we can ident- or s- identify what are known as like functional gene clusters, essentially other studies have looked at these genes and what their function is in the cells. And a lot of these studies have found that a lot of the genes that are implicated in autism are often associated with general synapse homeostasis. Synapse being the interface where a neuron interacts with another neuron. And it's dysfunction in this part of the circuit where autism is believed to kind of set its seeds. That's kind of where it starts, mm. right? And synapses are the, inter- like they connect all the neurons together, right? So if you have a problem in the synapse, it's gonna affect the entire brain. Right. But more specifically, MECP2 and Shank2, I'm going to focus more on Shank2 because that's kind of what my research is, um, is primarily found in excitatory neurons. So in the brain, we've got like inhibitory neurons and we have excitatory neurons. We got other cell types as well. But Shank2 is found on what is called the postsynaptic density of the excitatory neuron. It is the part of the membrane that is clustered with proteins. That's why it's often appeared as darker when you look at it under a microscope. And Shank2 is what is called a master scaffolding protein, right? When a neurotransmitter binds to a receptor, it signals or transmits information through a signaling cascade through this master scaffolding protein to affect other proteins that eventually affect gene expression. And that's kind of where I said MECP2 kind of comes in, Mm. right? So there's like this giant causal chain of events and Shank2 is in the front of it, and MECP2 is more downstream of it. And that's why MECP2 is more likely to result in more severe syndrome because it's directly interacting with the genes, right? It's directly inter- interacting with gene expression. Whereas Shank2 is more upstream, you can have more, what's the term? I guess uh, compensatory mechanisms that are able to compensate for, say, a Shank2 mutation. And that's perhaps why people that have this mutation don't always have autism. Wow. Right. So in genetics, there's a term called penetrance, right? If you have a mutation, if you that mutation will always cause that disease or disorder, it's 100% penetrant. If it causes that phenotype, it's 100% penetrant. But if you have that mutation and in a subset of population, it only causes the disorder maybe 50%, it's like 50% penetrant, right? And Shank2 and its associated Shank family genes um, do not have an incredibly high penetrance but they do have an influence. And it's through the combination of, like I said in the beginning, multiple genes that are affected, multiple mutations, where you end up with what is typically considered autism spectrum disorder. Wow, so I mean, we've got, we're really working out the pathways. Yes. In the brain and in the, in the specific cells where yeah. these genes are having their effect. Mm-hmm. And then you can actually relate that back to 
um, the epidemiology to like how many people actually have this disease with these certain mutations. And um, that's really interesting that you can say uh, uh, maybe a gene that's involved in this pathway that's higher upstream. Um, if you have a mutation, then you're less likely to have autism. But if it's more downstream, maybe it's going to be like a little bit more causal, mm-hmm. a little bit less, uh, less the cells can do anything about it. Now that's already, it's already down to the, the fundamental cause of the, of the disease. So if you have a mutation in that, you, there's not much you can do about it. And actually you see with people with mutations like that in those genes, they are more likely to have autism. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. So yeah. um, are you, are you expanding to look at like more genes? Or are you just focusing on these? Right now, well, it kind of depends. Uh, Our grant, the thing that provides us with funding, (laughs) is primarily focused on Shank 2. But I think our collaborators are definitely interested in expanding um, the genes that we do look at. Because Shank 2, so kind of going backwards, Shank, the Shank protein complex is made up of three proteins. There's Shank 1, Shank 2, Shank 3. And in the postsynaptic density of the excitatory neurons, they come together and they form that big scaffolding complex. Right, so Shank 2 is only a third of that protein. Shank 3 is also also implicated in autism. Shank 1 is also implicated in autism. So I would imagine there'd be a lot more interest in seeing how different mutations or combinatory effects of maybe a mutation in Shank 1 and Shank 2 might contribute to, say, autism as well, right? And like I said in the beginning, there are hundreds of genes associated with autism. There's a lot of research going on, but right now I'm focusing on Shank 2, right? So you're saying that you're using stem cells yeah. to look at this behavioral disease, or I'm assuming behavioral disease is an accurate way to call it, right? A lot of, a lot of the way autism is typically diagnosed is through behavioral assessment. Okay. Yeah. So in humans, to actually know if somebody has autism or what's going on, you, can, you would use somebody that's like diagnosed and you look at that. But instead, you're just looking at stem cells. So I'm mm-hmm. curious, how do you actually use... These, like, what are you doing to the stem cells to get a better idea of what's happening okay. in autism? Like, how do you know that this is related to autism, too? That's, that's a really good question, and that kind of will... I'll talk about the limitations of our model, but yeah. essentially we have patients that have been diagnosed with autism, and through uh, genome sequencing, they have, they have determined that this patient also had a mutation in the Shank 2 gene. Okay, so this now, gene's maybe just, like, it's correlated with the likeliness yeah. of autism. That's yes. what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. And to get a better idea of how maybe this mutation affects um, neuron development, circuit development, early circuit development in the brain, mm-hmm. what we and our collaborators have done have taken skin cells from these patients with autism. Um, skin cells, right? Skin cells. Yes. Okay. Right. And not they, brain cells. Not brain cells. Right. This out is of, where out the of magic interest, which skin? Like, where do you just like be like <laughs> stick <laughs> your hand out? We'll give you. They'll take yeah. something. Like, what? Essentially, where do they any get the skin? any place where you can get like fibroblasts. Okay. Right. Mm. So you can get them. You can get them inside cheek swab as well. You can get them pretty much anywhere. You can also use blood cells or hematopoietic hematopoietic cells, um, depending on what you're trying to study. They might have their pros and cons. But we use fibroblasts, and we do what is known as reprogramming, and that is re- turning the already adult skin cell into an earlier state, what is known as a stem cell, and this is what produces an induced pluripotent stem cell. And a stem cell is a cell that is capable of differentiating into a multitude of other cells. You can take a stem cell and differentiate that into bone cell or heart cell or cardiac cell or neuron. And right? some of those may be a little bit harder to do than yeah, others. Yeah, right? neurons have been reported to be a lot easier. Part of it is like the environment that they're in affects how they develop. So stem cells are very finicky. Like they're very cool technology and very cool science, but they're very much like a baby. You have to feed them every single day. You have to change them every couple of days. 
Well, that doesn't make sense. That, that makes sense because yeah. you, it almost literally is a baby. I mean, yeah. without, <laughs> yeah. not necessarily a, a whole baby, but it almost is a baby. You're turning yeah. back the time on the cell. So now it kind of has the capacity that a baby does to yeah. develop into whatever cells babies are producing. And that's kind of, that's kind of where the problem begins, right? Yeah. That's what you mean when you say developmental mm-hmm. problem or neurodevelopmental. Exactly. So. It's, it's very, very odd to think about it like that, but it's, it's <laughs> exactly what's happening in development. So once we have these stem cells, we essentially use a certain protocol. We have a recipe book. You can think of it like that. And we provide them with the proper chemicals and you're able to guide differentiation into whatever cell type you're interested in studying. So shank two is found in glutamatergic excitatory neurons. So we had an interest in these neurons. So we guided differentiation towards these excitatory neurons. And once they looked like they were mature, like adult like neurons, we plated them on this tiny grid of electrodes, a multi-electrode array. It's a tiny electrode. It's like, it's an eight by eight grid that is that fits within a 1.4 millimeter by 1.4 millimeter. Now take a ruler out and really appreciate how small that is. Like it's tiny, right? And you've got eight grids there and you've got hundreds of thousands of cells in that grid. Whoa. And over the course of six to eight weeks, you're seeing how the electrical activity changes and possibly how the network develops, changes. And you're kind of observing how these like, baby neurons go, grow into toddler neurons, how the baby network grows into toddler networks. And hopefully that's going to give us some insight into maybe how early neurodevelopment happens in autism, albeit, albeit the brain is much more complex, not just excitatory neurons. There's often inhibitory neurons. There's astrocytes. We do have mouse astrocytes and that itself is a small limitation, but there are reasons why we use mice astrocytes instead of human astrocytes. But hopefully this will give us some insight into possible developmental differences in the trajectory of um, autism neurons versus wild type or normal neurons. Yeah. So that was a lot. That is fascinating. Yeah. And the idea that you're having so many cells that are on this very tiny little grid, Mm -hmm. that's, it's mind blowing. Now, I guess this is a, it's a 2D structure, right? Yes. And so when I think of the brain, I think it's a 3D structure, obviously. Yeah. And so I think maybe that could that have potentially any play into it? Like, could that change how things work? Of course, yeah. yeah. I think I think that's definitely a limitation of, like, just basic 2D cell cultures, mm-hmm. right? How much of the organization that is forming in that dish is representative of the actual brain development? The brain is 3D, yeah. right? We obviously have, like, things like organoids now, which can more accurately represent the brain to an extent. But I think as a very basic study, basic preliminary study I think you have to start somewhere right and yeah. I think 2d cell cultures from patients that have autism is a good place to start it's a very like easy way to visualize mm-hmm. what's going on yeah. in this area now you mentioned something about electric currents yes so I'm just curious how do you actually measure and look at electric currents in this little grid yeah, yeah. What, what is a microarray? so yeah. you can think of it like so a multi-electrode array is essentially you can like the way it looks at least is an, a grid of eight dots, eight by eight dots. So there ends up being 64 electrodes, right? And mm, So each dot is an electrode. Each dot is an electrode. And they okay. pick up the very fine spatial temporal electrical, electrical activity of the local vicinity, vicinity of whatever is around them, right? So if there's maybe 10 neurons around the electrode, they're going to be picking up the activity of the 10 electrodes. And through computational analysis, you can maybe do some networking of this and see how the correlations of the activity in one electrode correlate with the electrical activity of another electrode. And you could say that perhaps these two electrodes are connected, 
right? If electrode A fires and then soon after electrode B fires, and you see that same pattern of activity multiple times, you can say with some certainty that these two electrodes have some kind of connectivity. And through observing, now doing that with all 64 electrodes and observing that over the course of six to eight weeks of development, you can kind of visualize how the network changes. And you can measure the activity of firing from these neurons and see how that changes as well. Right? So neurons fire with action potentials. They're kind of like binary values, on or off, ones or zeros. But it's that pattern of firing, right? the, the sequential burst of activity that also encodes some information. And it's really seeing the differences in the wild type population and the mutant population, so to speak is what my research is largely focused around. So are the so the neurons they're like they're like electricity. They're yeah. they're transmitting the electricity from these different electrodes that you've mm -hmm. laid out for them. Mm -hmm. So um, are they like connecting to each other and connecting to the electrodes? Like are are they making the synapses that you talked about before with the electrodes? So or like no. how's how are they how are they triggering electricity in the electrodes? So the electrodes measure what is known as extracellular membrane potential or electros electro extracellular potential, they're the electrical activity outside the neurons. And because the environment and the neurons are not independent of each other, the activity of an, what's happening in one neuron and its connected neurons affects the environment, you can kind of get a sense of what each individual neuron is doing from the environmental activity. So if there's like a decrease in current around certain neurons, you think that maybe there's an increase in current in, in neurons? Is that what you're kind of Yeah, saying? you can kind of Something view it like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah, you can view it like that. Very simple way of viewing it. Yeah. Right. So if you have 64 electrodes, and I'm assuming that many of these are going off at different times, different tempos and whatnot, how do you actually analyze that? Because I, I would imagine like just looking at that data, there'd be so much. And oh, you just yeah. couldn't do it like it, it is. It has, in, it's, it has introduced me into like neuroscientific big data, essentially. Ooh, you're it's, a big data scientist. I mean, I'd like to think of myself that way, uh, but I'm sure there are much larger data sets, but it has been a bit of a challenge, me kind of getting into uh, this kind of analysis because the amount of data is actually quite large. We're not, the other thing that I probably should mention is that it's not a continuous recording over six to eight weeks. Okay. We're only measuring for five minutes every other day for six to eight weeks. So... Hmm. There's still a lot happening in between. Is it like continuously measuring over those five minutes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's continuously measuring for five minutes, but that five minute recording is already six gigabytes long. Oh, wow. Right for, now, imagine. For all electrodes or just for, for one? For all the electrodes. That's, that's pretty huge. Right. So it's yeah. a lot of data. And now imagine measuring that continuously over the course of 68 weeks, you're going to fill up terabytes. Mm, yeah. Right. Oh so, my gosh. I mean. Do you have like a server farm in your lab? Or? So, like, how do you store all yeah. that? So. For, for six to eight weeks of development, it ends up being around like 50 gigabytes per plate. And we have multiple mm -hmm. plates representing like different biological replicates. But that's so much. It's, it's still a lot of data. And like if you do a lot of like fMRI and neuroimaging work, electrophysiology, you start getting like it's quite common to see that large of a file size. Um, thankfully, there are ways to reduce the file size. You can do a bunch of filtering. Right. You don't need all the information in that electrical signal. You can do what is known as spike detecting or spike sorting. And spike sorting is essentially from that continuous electrical signal, you're only pulling out what looks like spikes and you're using the spikes for your downstream analysis. So what I do is I look at how spikes and information stored in those spikes changes um, through development. Right so now. how much data would like some spikes for one plate? So if we had, if we had a five gigabyte 
recording or six gigabyte recording for a plate for a single recording, the spike file would be a couple megabytes. Oh, that's way better. Yeah. Right? Okay. But at the same time, looking at spikes is only one part of the problem, right? right? There's a lot of information that you might be missing depending on how you sorted out the spikes, mm-hmm. right? Because you're essentially using filters to pull out the information that you need and kind of discard the information you don't. Yeah. But so that you're really trying to take meaningful you're trying to take meaningful data out of that. Yeah. Out of the true signal, but you don't actually know if what you're taking out mm-hmm. is the correct meaningful data yeah. or if it's even meaningful. Yeah. And thankfully there's a lot of literature now that has been used in general electrophysiology and multi-electrode array technology that kind of helps you in point in the correct direction of what settings to use when you're trying to filter your data. But it's definitely a concern to have at the back of your mind. It's an assumption that you have to kind of state when you do present your data that this is the spike detecting algorithm that I use, this is the burst detecting algorithm I used. Because if you don't, you could very much mislead the general audience, especially if you're using uh, some setting that is not seen in literature at all, mm-hmm. right? So, this, you know, this is really amazing how, how um, I mean, I guess it's interdisciplinary, but it's broad. Yeah. This sort of con- the sort of study is, and how how um, these different fields sort of inform each other. I mean, I'm imagining in my head. So there's a clinician look uh, uh, looking at a, at a disease and a behavior, and this informs uh, somebody who who works with uh, with stem cells to to generate stem cells from this, these two different patients. They've got a patients in the, that don't have the, the disease and patients that do. So they go, and there's a whole field of people working yeah. at generating cells from these do, two different patients. And then a whole other field of people making neurons and people interested in neuroscience so that they can actually quantify neurons. And that's yeah. a whole other field as well. And then the whole other field in characterizing the data for it. And that's oh, kind yeah. of a computer science thing. Yeah, <laughs> so now you have these fields informing other fields like like one field generates a question that's sort of answered by a methodology from another field, yeah. which then generates another question that needs to be answered by another yeah. field. Yeah. <laughs> and and Cardic does it all. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really, what I really like is the collaboration that ends up happening in neuroscience, right? Neuroscience is so broad. You have things that are happening, the, like you have geneticists, right? That look at like the very smallest thing that's happening in the, in the cell. And then you have psychologists that are looking at the other end of the spectrum of neuroscience, behavior. Right? But you have all these things in the middle, right? You've got like systems neuroscience, you've got neuroimaging, and very rarely do you find a person that is good at neurobiology, but also has like a comp, like not computational, but like a psychological background mm-hmm. as well, right? And that's why it's so important for collaboration, especially nowadays where researchers are really trying to move forward. We're trying to bridge the gaps that have been kind of limiting science for so long to form a more complete picture or understanding of what is actually happening in the brain. It's so important that collaborations happen. Um, and what's interesting is now you're you're introducing the computer scientists as well because the amount of data that's just being generated, it's it's overwhelming. You need someone that could actually handle it and understand it. Yeah, so, so do you find like, I guess, um, I mean, uh, when I, when someone anyone mentions like computers involved, and we if, I think okay, well this is like a really technologically yeah. uh, important thing, like something you need technology for this. And anyone, I mean maybe technology is too broad a word, but you need technology for this, and technology is going to help this. So better technology you have, the better we're going to answer this question. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, I think well, I also have a job to do. You and I are neuroscientists, and <laughs> maybe if technology gets good enough, I'm not going to even be needed. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you're working doing this computer stuff. Could could this be done just by computers? Is I this going to be done by computer? I mean, it's it's. I mean, a lot of my day to day is programming, and a lot of what I do is kind of code this pipeline that is able to take the 
that basic signal from the MEAs, the multi-electrode arrays, and produce something meaningful out of it, right? Without having to do it every single time for every single experiment, right? If you have the data from the multi-electrode array, you just have to run it through the code and you never have to rewrite that code ever again. Mm. So in that sense, maybe it will take your jobs, <laughs> right? But at the same time, somebody has to do that initial programming mm -hmm. as well. But as of yet, it sounds like technology also is helping you get in touch and make those connections like you said you need to to yeah. get involved with the psychologists let's yeah. say and get involved with the computer scientists are yeah. you are you doing collaborations um with uh labs outside of western yeah so our collaborators that do a lot of the neurobiology that i've been speaking of work at sick kids in toronto the peter mm -hmm. gilligan center for research and learning uh james ellis lab um there they've been doing amazing research they recently released a, a paper on the shank to neurobiology that a lot of our research has been based off of and kind of working from they do a lot of single cell stuff and we try to do a lot of the population level stuff mm -hmm. right so we're bridging that gap right the because single like neurons don't work by themselves right they work in context and in relation with other neurons so that's only one perspective right you need to be able to bridge it with the population then eventually you want to take it to the whole brain then you want to take it to patients and understand the psychology and hopefully somehow bridge the gap albeit that's very uh very challenging uh thing to do because so so how did you how did you get into this position like this is really a cool study and you told yeah. us a lot about it and it's really yeah. really we're obviously really really intrigued by it Th but how did you get into this question position too because like, this is so interdisciplinary like yeah. how, how does one get into like something that's, like that's that? honestly one of my favorite things to talk about because i came to this lab and got this project quite like almost serendipitously like throughout my undergrad i did my undergrad here at western I did for five years. Um, I did a double major in genetics and physiology, right? So I had a I had a very strong passion for genetics, but then I kind of tried physiology, and you know what? I really like learning about the whole body, right? How things go from the basic code, the genetic code, and how that produces our body. And then in my fifth year, I took a bunch of neurophysiology courses, and I think quite all I think all the neurophysiology courses at Western. But anyway, <laughs> um, in one of my courses. Dr. Julio Martinez was teaching one of the classes. Um, he seemed quite interesting. I love the way he gave his presentations. Uh, at the end of one of the classes, I ended up talking about consciousness and free will. We spoke a bit after class and then he had to go to his office. So I followed him to his office. We ended up having a very informal, impromptu meeting. He kind of asked me, what was my background? I sold him genetics. I took physiology as well. I took some stem cell courses, but all through my four years or five years of at Western, I took programming courses as well. Right, programming was something that I was good at, but never really had like a, a deep passion. And from there, his like eyes widened because he had a project that was kind of like perfect for what I was doing. And at this time, I really wasn't looking for a master's project. I had applied for a master's in neuroscience at a couple universities, and um, but I had not done my due diligence. I didn't start researching about PIs, and I kind of wanted to do my work and kind of research what the PIs were researching before I approached them or they approached me. But he kind of tossed his project onto me and. Here I am, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's such an amazing story. Yeah. And uh, I really hope that it's that easy for everyone. I mean, it took me three years to find my position, but oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> everybody has their own path and yeah. uh, there's no right or wrong way to go about it. But I think that you certainly landed yourself in a good position and a good program, right? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky to be in the Western Neuroscience Program. I'm very lucky to be uh, have Julio as my supervisor as well. He's a very supportive mentor of mine. Excellent, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm really glad you came on the show and told us about your work. I think uh, people are going to be interested in hearing what you're working on because yeah. that's really that's really good stuff. Thank you. So uh, we are pretty much out of time here. 
So uh, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and we and my co-host here is Greg Robinson. Uh, we've been interdu- interviewing Kartik Pradipan yep. uh, from the neuroscience program here at Western. And um, if you want to hear more of our episodes, uh, we're online at gradcast.ca. We have the podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you want to get a podcast, you can find us. Um, on uh, social media, you can find us uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You can listen to the episodes there too. So lots of places to find it. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of us, you want to come on the show, you want to maybe participate in the show, say you're a grad student and you want to sit where I'm sitting, be a host, um, we do have positions available. So email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.